In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome once again to our series, Life, the Islamic Answer, where we are trying to extract the principles of Islamic living from the original sources in Islam, the Holy Quran and the narrations of the Holy Prophet and his Ahlul Bayt, peace and blessings upon them. The topic that we have been exploring or studying uh, within the big theme of knowledge has been the conditions which make knowledge Islamic. And we said there are two main conditions, the first being that the intention with which the knowledge is acquired is an intention of sincerity, an intention that it is for the sake of God, that it is to act upon it uh, in this world for the greater benefit of ourselves and humanity and for therefore the afterlife. On the other side, we also said that the second condition, about which we haven't really uh, talked about directly yet, uh, is the condition of action. Uh, knowledge in Islam cannot be limited to a theoretical uh, accumulation, uh, amassing of information. It needs to translate into actual actions. And so, inshallah, this will be the next topic that we discuss once we finish uh, what we have to say about Once we finish what we have to say about the topic of, or the first condition, namely uh, the sincerity of the intention. So, we will not repeat uh, kind of the main points that we have been discussing, except to say that the last few narrations that we looked at, there was a whole series of narrations which were basically warning us against um, acquiring knowledge for these worldly reasons, worldly purposes. We talked, for instance, about uh, those who acquire knowledge in order to flaunt it and compete with other scholars, those who acquire knowledge simply to dispute and argue uh, with those who are fools, those who are sufaha, uh, as we saw. Uh, another uh, type of uh, purpose which was uh, warned against is to uh, amass groups of people that will become our fans, our followers, uh, people who are interested in what we have to say, uh, so out of popularity and fame and therefore positions of leadership. Uh, and we also saw another condition uh, to avoid or, or purpose to avoid, which was to uh, use knowledge for uh, gaining socio-economic status, especially by getting closer to those who have authority, who have power, who have you know political sovereignty and so on and so forth uh, in society. So this is the topic that uh, we were trying to, to finish. So this is what we will be doing today, inshallah. Uh, following that, we will also try to look at uh, a few more narrations to kind of close off this topic. And I thought that I would try, inshallah, we have enough time to do so, 
there are two passages from Nahj al-Balagha uh, that I thought are worth sharing. Inshallah, we will come back to both of them later. Uh, they're very rich and we will not have time to comment on them now, nor even look at them fully. Uh, but I think that there are passages in there that are going to be very relevant, uh, not only for the topic that we're specifically discussing right now, but generally speaking for what we've been talking uh, throughout this uh, theme in general. So the first hadith that we wanted to look at uh, comes to us from the Holy Prophet and as we said, we're looking at these uh, hadith, these narrations that seem very similar. The reason why we're mentioning them is that in each one of them, we're finding something different. And so at the end, when we put it all together, we have a complete picture of what all of these hadith are trying to say. So the Holy Prophet says, مَن تَعَلَّمَ عِلْمًا لِيُمَارِيَ بِهِ السُّفَهَاءِ This is the same formulation we saw again and again. أَوْ يُجَادِلَ بِهِ الْعُلَمَاءِ أَوْ لِيَدْعُ النَّاسَ إِلَى نَفْسِهِ So you are learning, if someone is learning, the one who seeks knowledge, لِيُمَارِيَ بِهِ السُّفَهَاءِ In order to dispute and argue with the fools. أَوْ يُجَادِلَ بِهِ الْعُلَمَاءِ Or to argue with scholars. أَوْ لِيَدْعُ النَّاسَ أَوْ لِيَدْعُ النَّاسَ إِلَى here the Holy Prophet is very explicit and what is perhaps more explicit than what we have seen until now is that uh, we saw a number of hadith, all of them formulating it in a different way. They were saying to turn the faces of the people towards you, right? In this one, it's very different. The Holy Prophet is not saying to turn the faces of the people towards you. He's more explicit in stating to invite people to yourself. So in case there was any uh, ambiguity or confusion or lack of clarity around turning the people or the people's faces towards you, in this case, the Holy Prophet is a lot more explicit, a lot more clear. You are inviting people to yourself. You're calling people to yourself, okay? So clearly here there's a, a, a reference to kind of a selfish, egotistical drive impulse for which you are gaining this knowledge. You're doing it so that you gain popularity, fame, and you want people to be interested in you. You become, you know, your face, your name, your brand, uh, not really so much the knowledge itself and spreading it as it's about me. Right? So here the Holy Prophet says, The next hadith from the Holy Prophet again, he says, So again, uh, not to dispute with uh, those who are fools, not to argue with the scholars. So that you make the faces of the those who are powerful, those who have authority, those who have uh, power, socio-economic, political power, lean towards you, right? Once again, the reference to directly to hellfire. So we saw there was a gradation, right? Uh, some narrations were simply saying, beware of. And then slowly we went to hadith that are more explicit. This person, either And we will see even more, uh, perhaps even more aggressive of a tone uh, in a few hadith, inshallah. 
In another hadith, the Holy Prophet says, There are people from among my nation. They will acquire deep knowledge in this religion. So the issue is not their lack of knowledge. Because not only will they have knowledge, say we said the word fiqh means a lot and deep knowledge. You have a deeper understanding of something. This is the real meaning of fiqh. Say Specifically in religion, they will have a very deep knowledge, a very deep understanding. This is something to keep in mind. When you see very early texts talking about Qira'at al-Qur'an, Usually, it's not limited to someone who's simply reading the words of the Qur'an. This is someone who has become a scholar of Qur'an. This is someone who reads the Qur'an all the time. Okay, so here the Holy Prophet says, they will gain a very deep understanding of knowledge, of religion, and they will become reciters of the Qur'an. وَيَقْرَؤُونَ الْقُرْآنَ وَيَقُولُونَ نَأْتِ الْأُمَرَاءَ فَنُصِيبُ مِنْ دُنْيَاهُمْ وَنَعْتَزِلُهُمْ بِدِينِنَا so those people, they acquire the deep knowledge, they become reciters of the Holy Qur'an, and then they say to themselves perhaps, we will attend those with power. We will come to those who have power. Why? So that we gain from their riches, we gain from their worldly uh, possessions, while at the same time our religion is going to shield us. So we will not ever fall under their influence. We will never fall under their effect, right? Because we're shielded by our faith, our religion, our knowledge, our Quran. And the Holy Prophet says, But that will never be. Okay? But that will never be. Al-Qatad is a is a, a very thorny plant, well known, it's used a lot by the Arabs. There's a, a, a famous proverb in Arabic, when something is extremely difficult, not to say impossible, virtually impossible, they say, I don't know if you've heard that expression, sometimes uh, it is uh, used, uh, and basically it means it would be easier to put your hand on that plant, which is all of its thorns, would be very painful if one thorn came in inside your skin, went, went in your hand, and yet someone would say, I will put my hand and I will do a khart, khart al-qatan. I will pass my hand so that I remove all of it, right? It's as though I'm going to calm this plant with my hand. Okay, so they say that operation is easier than what you're claiming can be done. So when you see you know, would be easier than what you're claiming. Okay, and Khartal Qatad is already impossible. So Qatad is often used, this plant is often referred to as a, a very thorny plant that the Arabs knew at that time. So Allah, uh, the Holy Prophet says, You do not expect, as you do not expect to be able to, You don't expect to gain any fruits, or any other benefits or anything good from Qatar except the shok, except the thorns of the Qatar. So there is nothing else to be expected to be gained by going closer to those with authority and power and the riches, and you will not therefore be shielded with that faith of and religion and knowledge of the Quran. So here 
one, one point that is very important is that we have to keep it in mind. These people learned religion with the intention of going closer to those who have power. So that's the issue here. It's not that the circumstances led them there. No, those people are intentionally saying, no, no, I, I'm going to learn knowledge so that I may go and acquire the riches of the world because I have this knowledge and I will be shielded and I will remain intact and infallible and protected through my religious knowledge and through my Quranic knowledge. And again, this is a good case where the results are well anticipated. So don't play with fire. And we've talked about this in a, a number of different ways. You will get burned. So something to, to keep in mind. This is a theme that always comes back in the texts that are more spiritual. Okay? Inshallah, we talk about that more uh, later. In another um, hadith from the Holy Prophet, another narration from the Holy Prophet, وآله, he says, Man talab al-ilm yuridu bihi hartha dunya If someone seeks knowledge, uh, desiring from that knowledge the harvest of this world, لَمْ يَنَلْ حَرْثَ الْآخِرَةِ they will gain nothing from the harvest of the afterlife. This is, there are verses of the Quran that talk about this, right? There's harf al-dunya and there's harf al-akhir. There's a harvest. And are you expecting, are you hoping to gain anything from the harvest of this world? Or the harvest of the next world? Or maybe both? So here the Holy Prophet is not talking about all of the different uh, alternatives. He's mentioning one. He's saying, if you are seeking knowledge, seeking only the harvest of this world, then know for sure that there is nothing for you to be gained in the afterlife. And we talked a little bit about this. We said there are different types of knowledge. There are types of knowledge that you can acquire in order to benefit from them in this world. And there is no issue there that you want to learn them not for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa you specifically want to learn them so that you make money. You learn a craft, you learn a profession. There's no issue in doing that. There are religious types of knowledge, spiritual types of knowledge, those Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to learn for Him and not to use in any worldly way. You are not learning this so that you gain anything worldly, anything material, fame and popularity, get closer to those of power, so on and so forth, they are not intended for that. That's when you fall under the curse of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But then there's a gray zone. And that's what we've been talking about. The gray zone is, how about you use that knowledge that you are going to benefit from, that people may benefit from in this world, how about you also use that knowledge or try to use that knowledge for the harvest of the afterlife. You are going to spend all this energy and this time learning this knowledge. You want to become a doctor, you want to become a sociologist, you want to become an engineer, you want to become a mechanic. It doesn't matter what. These things are considered to be types of knowledge for worldly reasons. It's a craft, it's a profession, whatever it may be. There is a way, based on everything that we have said until now, it's not so much the content of the knowledge as the intention behind the knowledge that is going to make it Islamic or not. And so there is a way for you to gain 
the harvest of the afterlife with any type of knowledge so long as the intention behind it is one of the intentions that we've been talking about you are seeking a lost pleasure with it you are seeking the harvest of the afterlife with that and we we gave examples and we will continue to give more examples and we'll give a lot more details in future lectures where we said we're going to talk about the types of knowledge that Islam really encourages and recommends but of course we can also imagine that this was 14 centuries ago and social life is constantly changing and there's so much more that we could do perhaps today that was not needed in the past you may not have a hadith about it so it's a matter of understanding the intention with which you approach you seek knowledge and what you plan to do with it and what you actually do with it the action which we haven't talked about yet and it's coming inshallah as the next topic the next hadith from the Holy Prophet ﷺ, he says, From all the people, there are some who will be the first to be judged in the afterlife, on the day of judgment. The first who will be judged on the day of judgment, Rajulun al-ilm. Once again, notice how the issue is not lack of knowledge. As much as we talked about your entire worth as a human being being based on the knowledge you have and the aql and how you use that knowledge here you see this person is being judged the first to be judged Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala starts with these people Rajulun someone who learned knowledge who acquired knowledge and who taught knowledge and that person was a reciter of the Quran so this person is brought forth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks him, do you recognize all these favors that I bestowed upon you? And this person says, yes, of course, all of these favors meaning becoming a scholar and becoming a reciter of the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks him, or the angels who are judging, they ask, what did you do with the favors we gave you? This person is going to answer, قَالْ تَعَلَّمْتُ الْعِلْمُ Quran." So based on all the blessings and the favors that I had, I used all of that to learn, to acquire knowledge, to teach, and to recite the Holy Quran. The answer comes back, and it will be said to him, قَالْ كَذَبْتْ you have lied. You are lying. That's not what you did with the favors that we bestowed upon you. You learned all of this knowledge only so that it be said about you that you are a alim. Only so that it be said about you that you are a scholar. Someone who is knowledgeable. Someone who has learned. وَقَرَأْتَ الْقُرْآنَ لِيُقَالَ هُوَ قَارِئٌ And you have recited the Holy Qur'an only so that people say that person is a reciter. And so the hadith continues فَقَدْ قِيلَ So it has been said. What does it mean? You did all of this so that it would be said about you that you are a alim, that you are a qari, well, it was said about you that you are a alim. And it was said about you that you are a qari. 
So basically you made it. That was the reward you were looking for. You got the reward that you're looking for. Don't expect any other reward in this afterlife now. The intention for which you did it was a worldly intention. We gave it to you. Don't tell us now you did all of this so that you truly carry knowledge, so that you act on it to come to the afterlife. Then it is ordered so that that person is dragged on their face and then thrown into hellfire. So this is a humiliation that comes with it. And this is something we're going to see more and more of. There's a lot of these ahadith that we're going through. We're not necessarily going to go back through these ahadith, but inshallah you will remember them. They're talking about something specific that we're going to come back to. When we start talking about action, and then the need to use the knowledge that we're acquiring to act on it, and the first action will be to build a community of knowledge. And the community is made up of learners and made up of teachers. Therefore, we're going to spend some time understanding who is this teacher. And we're going to see there that there is a huge responsibility, a very heavy responsibility on the shoulders of those who become the teachers. They are representatives of this religion. And so what happens to them and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deals with them is very different than how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deals with the person who is not a scholar, who is not carrying that amount of knowledge. As much as you will see the merits and the value of those people be incomparable to anyone else, the rewards cannot be compared with anyone else, the punishment is the same. So it goes both ways. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is fair. If you use it wisely, what you can achieve cannot be compared. No one can catch up to you because of the knowledge you have. But on the other side, if you misuse it, then the punishment that comes your way is also incomparable. And we're going to go through the hadith and we will see that as much as there are merits, let's start with understanding the duties and responsibilities associated with the person who now carries this knowledge and putting themselves in a position to teach that knowledge. The next hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, احذر ممن يتعلم This is a longer hadith, this is a part of it. He says, احذر ممن يتعلم للمراء Beware of the one who is seeking knowledge, who is learning للمراء Just so that they argue and dispute. ويتفقه للرياء And they acquire deep understanding only to show off, only for show. يُبَادِرُ الدُّنْيَا Full of initiative. This person is full of initiative towards this world, towards this life. وَيُؤَاكِلُ التَّقْوَى And he uses taqwa, he uses piety as a eating host or an eating companion. يُؤَاكِل That's the person that you sit with to eat. It's your eating buddy. Imam Ali is as though he is saying, he uses taqwa for food. He uses taqwa to fill his belly. He uses taqwa to gain worldly benefits. Okay? So taqwa has become his eating buddy. The person that he uses to gain food. Okay? I go to this person, to the host, so that they feed me. I'm invited to a meal. Okay? يُعَاكِلُ taqwa. فَهُوَ بَعِيدٌ مِنَ الْإِيمَانِ This person is far, this person is distant from faith. قريب من النفاق 
They're very close to hypocrisy, double-faced. Mujanibun lirushd. You always find them away from, avoiding. Mujanib is to be beside. There's a path and you don't walk on the path. You walk beside the path, parallel to the path, but not on it. You refuse to walk on it. That's Mujanib. Mujanibun lirushd. Always avoiding the path of rushd, of wisdom. Muwafiqun lilghay. They are always in agreement with ghay, with error, with incorrectness. فَهُوَ بَاغٍ غَاوٍ لَا يَذْكُرُ الْمُحْتَدِينَ Baghin basically means someone who transgresses. Bari is to transgress. غَاوٍ is someone who seduces, tricks and seduces. لَا يَذْكُرُ الْمُحْتَدِينَ They never mention those who are actually guided. They never remember those who are guided. And here, once again, you know, you see Imam Ali السلام, he began by saying Once again, you see the warning is not from those who we saw warnings against those who don't have knowledge. Here the Imam is saying stay away from, beware of the person and this person is carrying religious knowledge. This person is seeking religious knowledge. But the intention behind it is Okay, so that's one. The other, the second point is, and inshallah we're going to spend a lot more time on this later. These, there are references in this to kind of, we can call them spiritual diseases. Why is it that this person has a problem mentioning those who are guided? Why? There's a spiritual disease here. There's an illness of the soul that makes this person incapable or hates mentioning those who are actually guided. It could be envy, it could be jealousy, it could be uh, egoism and, and an air of superiority. I want people to look at me, so I will not mention anyone else because that may I may lose fans there, I may lose followers. And of course, this applies really, the real application of this is to Ahlul Bayt And to much smaller degrees to the commoners, to other people, to all of us. But that's the truth. It's who are you calling to? What are you trying to bring people towards? You're trying, trying to bring them towards you? Or are you trying to bring them towards Allah and the Quran and the Holy Prophet and Ahlul Bayt Okay? And inshallah, we're, we're going to come back to all of that. And then again, the other link here, once again, I think, to keep in mind, once again, this has to do with the teacher. So as much as this applies to all of us, it also applies to this person we want to take as a teacher. We, we have a lot of these recurrent uh, characteristics or traits that keep coming back now again and again. Inshallah, we're going to keep them in mind. We're going to talk about who should we be following, who should we be using, respecting, uh, considering as a teacher. Inshallah, we're going to come back to all of that later. In uh, narration, this one does not have a lot of new in it, but the ending is different. So this one, pay attention to it. From Imam al-Sadiq salam he says to one of his companions, Ibn al-Nu'man, لا تطلب العلم لثلاثن so these are not different. Do not seek knowledge for three reasons. Do not seek knowledge to show it off. 
وَلَا لِتُبَاهِ بِهِ Or said that you proudly display it to others to flaunt it. وَلَا لِتُمَارِي Or said that so that you argue and dispute with it. Okay, so those, the same that we saw. But then he adds, and this is new in this hadith. The Imam says, وَلَا تَدَعْهُ لِثَلَاثٍ And also, there are three things. These are not good enough reasons not to learn. He just gave us three reasons for which we should not be learning. You don't learn for those reasons, to flaunt it, to use it for argument. We saw all those. Now he's saying there are three reasons that are not good enough not to learn. So the Imam says, so don't use these as pretext. And sometimes the shaitan will trick you one way or another where you end up using one of these as the reason for which you're not learning. One of them is رَغْبَةً فِي الْجَهْلِ It may sound funny. رَغْبَةً فِي الْجَهْلِ Out of a desire for ignorance. And we talked about this in the past. We said sometimes we say, I know enough. What I already know is sufficient. I don't need to learn more. And we said perhaps the easiest way to understand it is simply laziness. رَغْبَةً فِي الْجَهْلِ It's as though it is out of a desire for remaining ignorant. As though that is a good enough reason not to learn, the Imam says. That's not enough of a good reason. رَغْبَةً فِي الْجَهْلِ The second one. وَزَهَادَةً فِي الْعِلْمِ Something that is zaheed is something that has no value. So for the reason why this person is not learning is because they undervalue knowledge. Zahadatan fil ilm. They're not giving knowledge its proper worth, its proper importance. No matter how much importance you're giving knowledge, based on the hadith that we saw, if it's true knowledge, knowledge that could transform you, knowledge that could change your life, could change your outcome, could change your rank in the afterlife. I don't think we can ever put a price on this. I don't think we could ever put a worth or a value on this. So when the Imam says, وَزَهَادَةً فِي الْعِلْمِ It's because you're undervaluing. If you really understood the value of that knowledge, you would seek it. But because you undervalue knowledge, you don't seek knowledge. So the Imam is saying, this is not a good enough reason not to learn. Because you are undervaluing the worth of that knowledge. And the last reason, وَاسْتِحْيَاءً مِنَ النَّاسِ and the third reason that is not good enough not to learn is out of shame and embarrassment from people. How can I sit in a class and learn? How can I become a student? How can I become a student of so-and-so? How can I be at the same level as someone else? Inshallah, we're going to see the ahadith where what it says and how the Holy Prophet talks about the old man with white in his beard sitting beside the child to learn and how much reward they get because that's difficult because this shows that this person has insincerity they are going against social, economic, cultural customs principles things that are believed in their society out of sincerity to learn because knowledge is more important than feeling shame or not feeling shame feeling embarrassed or not feeling embarrassed. And we will see this as a recurrent theme 
and the hadith of Ahlul Bayt السلام, when we're going to talk about the knowledge community. This is just a hint to it. So the Imam here is saying, these are three reasons that are not good enough not to learn. Because you want to stay lazy and ignorant, not good enough. Because you don't understand the worth and value of the knowledge, not good enough. Just trust us. Imam Sadiq says, trust me, it's worth it. It's not because you're undervaluing it, not giving it its worth, that you're not going to go learn it. No, you still go learn it, even if you don't understand how much it's really worth. And finally, out of shame, out of embarrassment. I'm too shy to go learn, to say I don't know. People know that I don't know. And so on and so forth. And inshallah, we're going to see this whole topic of the, the shame. We're going to see that, in fact, there is no shame in learning. Right? This is, we're going to see the ahadith that talk about this. Learning will never be shameful. The worst that can be said about you is this person is learning. And this is actually a praise and a compliment. We're going to see ahadith that say, if knowledge was something to be ashamed of, you are still obligated to go learn. And so imagine when it is not. There is no shyness and shame and embarrassment from ever saying, I don't know. But the shame is to staying in that state and not going and seeking the knowledge. In any case, inshallah, we're going to come back to this. So this, the Imam just gave us three reasons that are not good enough not to learn. Right? And this hadith, I think this one is a good hadith to use to transition to the next one. The next few hadith. There's something that we've been repeating now and then in the narrations through which we're going. And inshallah, this point is clear, but I want to emphasize it now. It does not only apply to this topic. It certainly applies to this topic because this one is a very difficult one. The topic of sincerity of intention. But this is a general Islamic principle. Sometimes there are things that we talk about, and this is why it's also important that when you present a topic, when you uh, approach a topic in Islam, that you do it in the right sequence. You don't jump any steps, because suddenly something that is supposed to be a next logical step in a long journey becomes something impossible for someone to do, unrealistic for someone to do, because you jumped too many steps, right? For someone else, it's okay, because they've been practicing, and they're on that journey, and they've been on that journey going through all the steps. You haven't. So to you, it looks something that you can't just jump into. Someone who hasn't worked on any discipline spiritually is going to have trouble with a hadith that have to do, for instance, with purifying your intentions. It's not easy. We're talking about things that are abstract and things that are difficult. The end result, the conclusion from all of these warnings that we see, the difficulties that we talk about, in general, but specifically about knowledge too, should never be, therefore I don't do it. Inshallah, this is not a point that we always need to repeat. But now I'm making a point to repeat it because I'm going to go through some hadith. It's not because the Holy Prophet and the Imma are telling us you must purify your intentions 
And if you don't, this knowledge is going to be used against you. So that I say, well then, it's maybe better for me just not to learn. Because I don't want this knowledge to be used against me. And who says, maybe my intentions are not sincere. And so it's better for me not to do it. And I've talked about this in different ways. That it leads to paralysis. Or any of these teachings in Islam lead you to go the other way. Of course, all of these teachings are about moving in a certain direction. But sometimes they come with conditions. They come with warnings. They come with... But the, the journey and the direction of the journey should be very clear which way we're going. No one should ever turn that into a counter-argument and say, well then maybe therefore it's better for me not to go that way. This condition of making sure that my intentions are good when I learn is good. It's just too difficult for me. And I'm seeing that it comes with huge risks in this world and the next. I lose blessings. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not happy with me. It may turn against me in the afterlife. I may be punished for it. Why bother in the first place? And I can't guarantee that my intentions are ever going to be good and pure. So it might be better for me not to go in that direction. The issue is that you're going to see a hadith that are going to deal with this. So the way to understand them is to keep the points that we just talked about in mind. We've been talking about the topic of acquiring knowledge and acquiring knowledge with sincere intentions. I may come to the knowledge initially, seeking the knowledge, not because I'm a vicious person, not because I'm a bad person to start with, but because I'm an ordinary human being. When I first approach the knowledge, I'm not going to have all of this, all of these warnings intuitively. I'm not going to know all of these conditions intuitively. What I know is what I know, and usually it's based on what I've seen and how life works. So of course, there might be a good dose of the drive for seeking that knowledge in me that is entirely worldly. I am doing it so that people say this person is a scholar. And I am doing it so that I gain some favors and I'm worldly gains and so on and so forth. That's when I first come. Is it out of some viciousness uh, or because I'm full of you know, sins and so on and so forth? No. Because I don't know any better. The difference is once I start knowing, then what happens? Otherwise, let's be honest, unless you're an infallible, who is going to approach knowledge with that entirely, absolutely pure intention? Especially at the beginning. The hadith are saying whoever seeks knowledge. Of course, when you're going to seek knowledge, you're not going to have all of this as part of who you are, hardwired in you, that you're going to constantly remind yourself, I'm doing it with the most sincere and the most pure of intentions. That's not going to, that's just not realistic. It's not for me, it's not for any of us. We're not infallible, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not given us that blank check. So the condition then becomes, it's once I understand these conditions. Once I know, once I have gained these warnings, 
these, this type of spiritual knowledge that is being explained to me by all of these hadith about the importance of it and based on my ability, what I can actually do to purify my intentions, what am I trying to do now, now that I know? And I think this makes seeking knowledge, acquiring knowledge, using knowledge, teaching knowledge a lot more realistic for the common mortals that we are, the ordinary people that we are. Okay, so that was kind of a quick caveat that I wanted to add here before we read a few ahadith. I think that with this framing, now that we're going to see these ahadith, we're going to see that, in fact, they are not contradicting anything we have said. If we keep the points that we just made in mind. Otherwise, someone who sees these ahadith and who has been following along with us for the past three or four lectures, they're going to say this is a, just a, a flagrant, raw contradiction to everything that you've been saying. Okay? So this is where we see that there are ranks and there are levels. And this is where you see that Islam always has these different, uh, all of the tools that can be used to make a human being better are used by Islam. As an example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to get people to become good, He doesn't only talk about hell. He also uses heaven. This is a completely different approach. On the one side, I attract you to something that you want. On the other side, I scare you with something you absolutely want to avoid. These are the stick and the carrot. These are completely different tactics, right? We saw one way of talking about the importance of the sincerity of intention. Now look at these other ahadith, okay, with that introduction. And we don't need a lot of them, though at the point I think it's going to be very clear very quickly. Um, <coughs> if I can find the hadith. There's one hadith here from the Holy Prophet in which he says, إن الرجل ليطلب العلم وما يريد الله There are people who seek knowledge. The man or the person will seek knowledge. وما يريد الله Not because they're, they're not doing this, they're not seeking knowledge for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فما يزال به العلم حتى يجعله لله So, this person, they may seek knowledge for other reasons than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but knowledge keeps acting on this person until it becomes for the sake of God. So this is different. In the first case, in all of the hadith that we saw, you are coming with the right intention from the beginning. Here the Holy Prophet is saying, initially when you came to the knowledge, you may not have come with the right purposes, with the right objective. But now that you have gained the knowledge and the knowledge is starting to act on you, now you are doing it for the right reasons. Okay? So the Holy Prophet is recognizing that maybe when you're starting out, your initial state was not great. But then you see the difference. The knowledge, once it has entered, is going to have that impact on you. Okay? And this is normal at a cognitive level and it's normal at a spiritual level. Cognitive as in, you did not have information, so how could you know? 
You simply did not know these things. So how could you be expected to act any differently? I did not know that I had to have a purity of intention when seeking knowledge. Now I do. That's a cognitive reason. But there's also a spiritual dimension to all of this. We haven't talked about the spirituality of knowledge, how knowledge affects the soul. We've simply said that, consider knowledge like a type of a light, a nur that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts in your heart. Okay? It may turn on, it may become a lot brighter for some people, a lot weaker in, in others, but it's a light. Okay? This is the, the blessing. There's a spirituality that comes with the knowledge. So, of course, when it's not in place, when you don't have the cognitive tools, this may or may not be happening. But once you actually do it with the right intention, now I know, and I am open to it, and I do it with sincerity, I really want this knowledge for the right reasons, this is when it starts having this effect on me. In another hadith, Imam Ali السلام, says, تَعَلَّمُوا الْعِلْمُ وَلَوْ لِغَيْرِ اللَّهِ Learn knowledge or seek out knowledge even if it is not for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala فَإِنَّهُ سَيَصِيرُ لِلَّهِ Eventually and with time if it's the right knowledge and you have the right attitude it will become for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Okay? So this goes these are not contradicting what we have said but you have to keep in mind that transition that we use to or the framing that we use to explain these ahadith. Yeah, there are a few other ahadith here. I'm having trouble reading. There's a hadith here from the Holy Prophet He says, "Man talab al-ilm li-ghayrillah, lam yakhruj min al-dunya hatta yati alayhi al-ilm, fiyakoon lillah. Wa man talab al-ilm lillah, fahuwa kasaimi naharahu wal-qaimi leila." There's the person who seeks knowledge for other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they will not depart from this world until this knowledge has made it so that it is for the sake of Allah. They have acquired, obviously this person has acquired the right type of knowledge. And they have done, they have had the right attitude about it. And so this knowledge has become at the end, ultimately this knowledge is becoming for the sake of Allah. Even though initially, when they approached it, it was not for Allah subhanahu wa And then he says, وَمَنْ طَلَبَ الْعِلْمَ لِلَّهِ And this is where you see that the ranks, there's fairness. There's someone who actually comes to the knowledge, seeking the knowledge for the sake of God. Right from the beginning. So once you fall in that state, so if you've been in that state all along, of course, you're getting a reward that matches that. If not, eventually you're good. But your position is not the same as the one who's been in that state all along. So the Holy Prophet adds here, So there's a difference. As for the one who seeks the knowledge for truly for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they are like the one who is fasting their days and staying their nights up in worship. And a single chapter or a single type of knowledge that a person learns is better for them than if they had Abu Qubais. Abu Qubais is a uh, mountain 
to the east of Mecca, near behind the Safa, when you go inshallah to Hajj, the Safa will Marwa. On the Safa side, behind it, there, there was a, a mountain that the Holy Prophet refers to a lot in his ahadith, because the Arabs know it. All the Arabs talk about it. It's one of the bigger mountains in Mecca. It's about 400 meters tall. It's called Abu Qubais for all sorts of reasons. Perhaps the man who first inhabited it or a man who ran away from running away from a, a battle way, way before Islam. It's called Abu Qubais. So when Abu Qubais is mentioned, usually it doesn't say the mountain. So you have to know what, who is this Abu Qubais. Abu Qubais is the name of a mountain. The Holy Prophet is saying, learning one type or one chapter of knowledge, Bab min al-ilm, is better for a person than to have the equivalent of, than to have Abu Qubais to give away in charity. If it were made of gold, the Holy Prophet says, يَكُونَ لَهُ أَبُوْ قُبَيْسِ خَيْرٌ لَهُ مِنْ أَنْ يَكُونَ لَهُ أَبُوْ قُبَيْسِ ذَهَبًا If Abu Qubais was were to be made of gold and فَأَنْفَقَهُ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ And they gave it for the sake of Allah as an act of charity learning one type of knowledge one chapter of knowledge is better more beneficial to a person than giving all of this as an act of charity uh, the equivalent of Abu Qubais and gold and so again, the, the point, there's a lot to say here in the hadith, but once again, right from the beginning, the Holy Prophet was saying, you have learned the knowledge for the wrong reasons, but eventually with time, it became for the right reasons. And as I said, if we were to look at, generally speaking, how human beings are, this is how we all are. We start off with the wrong reasons because we don't know any better. The issue is not initially how we come to knowledge. The issue is once we have this, this specific type of knowledge, once we acquire an understanding of this specific condition to knowledge, then what happens? Then do we purify the intentions or not? This is something that, I'm not going to sp spend too much time on it, I think we should wrap it up here, and maybe next time, inshallah, we'll talk about the, the passages from the Hajjul Balagha. Um, the Arabs, many of them, who would come to the Holy Prophet this happened in his time, it happened throughout history, people who study the lives of Ahlul Bayt people who study the Holy Quran, they come to it not only with a lack of sincerity in their intention, there are people who come to acquire this knowledge specifically to refute it. There are scholars, especially from the Sunni school. There are people who have studied Islam from outside. The intention behind studying certain topics, certain aspects, certain people is nothing but a bad intention. The intention to refute, the intention to dispute, the intention to argue. And with time you see that this knowledge affects them and affects them in a very positive way. They convert, for instance, and they become Muslims. It happened at the time of the Holy Prophet. It would happen in the times of the Imams. They would come, they would talk with the Imams. They want to insult Imam al-Hassan. We have many narrations, many stories about these. And the Imams talk to them a little bit, and then these people become some of the better 
most well-known followers of the Imams. Sometimes you don't have the knowledge. The intention with which you're, you're seeking something may be entirely contrary to what ends up happening. But you do have to have a, a little bit of a, a portion of a, a glimmer of openness and cleanliness inside of you to allow this to happen. There's a, a very famous political party in the Netherlands. Uh, it's called the PVV, the Party for Freedom, by uh, Gert Wilders. And basically the entire purpose of the existence of that party in the Netherlands is to abolish Islam. He is very, very famous. Basically, they even find their platform, the way they create their platform, you know, every political party has a platform that they run. So that people elect them, you have to know what's their platform, what are they proposing in terms of policies, how to change society. Their platform basically tries to find issues in society that politicians have to deal with, and then they link back those issues, all of those issues to Islam. Every issue in society is because of Muslims and because of immigrants from Muslim countries. And they, a few years ago, they, they had a movie called Fitna. They published a movie called Fitna. Very short movie, propaganda, but in which they explain all of this, how Islam is this absolutely horrible ideology that is messing up the entire country and all of Europe and the whole world. And therefore, we must entirely abolish it. We must entirely wipe it out of Holland, of the Netherlands. And, you know, there are a lot of people who follow this. And they're completely in agreement and it works. The issue though, is that there are people within the party. You cannot enter that party unless obviously you're pretty hardcore and extreme in your views that you are willing to take political action and become member of parliament based on this platform. That's a lot of hatred that you're carrying and running an entire platform just based on this. So one of the people who was part of this party, his name is Arnoud van Dorn. Dorn. This person, with time, he was one of those who distributed this movie, Fitna, with time because of what they were exposed to and what they were thinking about all the time and what they were researching, he ended up becoming a Muslim. And another person in the party, a member of parliament, this one a lot better known, Joram van Cleveren, this person, the MP, his story is much more famous. He was actually the spokesperson every time Islam was mentioned in the parliament his job in the parliament was to speak against Islam. So in the political party, his job is to be as anti-Islam as possible. His job is to be the spokesperson. He carries that file, the anti-Islam file, abolishing Islam file. And as part of what he was doing, he was also researching. He wasn't doing this just because it's a job. He actually believed in this. And he was researching all sorts of things in order to write a book to explain how all the issues in the Netherlands were because of Islam. And as, I, as he was doing his research to write all of this, the end result was he became a Muslim. And he changed the book. The book was published eventually. It's called Apostate. 
if you want to buy it I have not read that book it's on a to, to read eventually list inshallah I will read it in which he basically explains his background and the reasons for which he ended up becoming a Muslim to me these are very living examples of what we've been talking about sometimes the intention is completely different the intention with which you seek the knowledge may not be there but because you have that openness some cleanliness within you you are objective and sincere in how that knowledge is affecting you you end up allowing that knowledge to do whatever knowledge does inside inside you to act on your soul as it's supposed to act and then you see this these people for instance as examples they become Muslims and there are many many examples of this so all of this to say inshallah nothing in what we have been talking about leads anyone to despair and become hopeless or think that what we've been talking about is too difficult or idealistic or un unrealistic no absolutely not and we have the hadith to back it up we have the hadith that basically say whenever you see something good go for it you may not be perfect when you start you may not be doing it with all of the right intentions there's always going to be some lacks and imperfections in it but if you know that this is the right thing to do go for it and do it and inshallah with time it will keep getting better inshallah the next time that we meet we'll go to a saying from Imam Ali salam. I can give you the the saying and the, the, the sermon uh, that I wanted to read very quickly but I, I wanted to spend a few moments if you allow me to talk about the Holy Prophet since it was his passing away his demise uh, two nights ago or three nights ago uh, so I'll stop here for for this lecture if you want to take a look at the two passages from Nahj al-Balagha uh, the first one is in the short sayings at the very end of Nahj al-Balagha you know Nahj al-Balagha has the longer sermons and then the second part has the letters of Imam Ali the writings of Imam Ali salam and then at the very end sometimes they're combined together they're short sayings and then very short sayings or sometimes they're all just together as short sayings depending on the edition so it's number 145 the short sayings where Imam Ali salam talks to Kumail about knowledge so we won't have time to go through it and comment it and but I think it's an excellent little tiny couple of paragraphs to read and constantly read uh, and remember for for ourselves uh, and perhaps it would be leading to a good discussion uh, if you take a, a closer look uh, and the second one is uh, sermon 87 uh, that I promised you a while back that we would talk about since it addresses directly the uh, a lot of the topics, a lot of the issues that we've been talking about uh, as part of this uh, theme or part of this series, I really thought that it brings together a lot of the different strings that we've been talking about in one place. So inshallah we, uh, we start with those the next time we meet and then slowly what one thing that once we're done uh, I'm curious to see if you're interested or not uh, and it's fine either way whether we spend more time on intentions in general because we focused only on the sincerity of intentions to acquire knowledge but this actually could open the door to speaking about niyyah in Islam in general 
or do we just put it aside and continue with the topic? And the next subtopic that we want to talk about now is the second condition that we haven't really uh, addressed directly, which is amal. We've talked about niyyah and ikhlas. Now we have to move to action and amal. So that's uh, the next one. So I'm, I'd be very curious to see, do we spend more time on niyyah or is the topic well understood? And generally speaking, that's all we need uh, for this. And since we're talking about knowledge, that's Let's just keep it about knowledge, and we move to amal. So think about it and tell me what you think, uh, and then let's begin the um, maybe 15, 15, 20 minutes on the passing away of the Holy Prophet Muhammad. In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful. So, uh, as we just mentioned, two or three nights ago, uh, we were going through the uh, demise anniversary of the Holy Prophet. Uh, we can say the demise, the passing away, the death, and we could also say the martyrdom of the Holy Prophet. And because uh, it's already late, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, I don't intend to make this into a full-fledged lecture. Um, but at the same time, uh, I don't think that we should completely miss the opportunity to talk about the Holy Prophet whenever we can, uh, especially for, you know, if you follow the news, the, la the latest attacks on the Holy Prophet, I thought, from France, where now there are calls to abolish the name Muhammad from France entirely. So I thought that at least we take a few minutes to honor and talk about our Holy Prophet uh, To me, this just continues the, uh, the history, the very long history of injustices and oppression against the Holy Prophet that continues uh, and it will not stop anytime soon. Uh, but uh, such a shame when someone understands what the Holy Prophet, who, who this man was and how he was and how he behaved and what he represented uh, and how misunderstood he is, uh, how many misconceptions and misgivings there are around him. Uh, I think we should try whenever we can to uh, seize the opportunity to talk about him and to get to know him a little bit better. So um, very quickly, as I said, uh, not enough time to, to give a, a full lecture here. Uh, the Holy Prophet passes away on the 28th of Safar. Uh, and I happened to be reading this book uh, recently by Leslie Hazelton. And I'll talk about Leslie Hazelton in a second. The book begins, so this is chapter one, basically right after uh, the prologue. Uh, two pages of a prologue, and then you know I'm reading from the first line of the book. Okay, she says, uh, or after the first sentence, you know what? I'll read from the first line. If there was a single moment, it all began. It was that of Muhammad's death. Okay, so the book is called "After the Prophet: The Epic Story of the Shia Sunni Split" by Leslie Hazelton. So she says, even the prophet was mortal. That was the problem. Okay, so let's put all of that aside. This is the line that I want you to focus on. It was as though nobody had considered the possibility 
that he might die. Not even Muhammad himself. Did he know he was dying? He surely must have. So too those around him, yet nobody seemed able to acknowledge it. And this was a strange blindness on their part. And so then she goes on to explaining all sorts of things. So I thought I would react to this. That's all I wanted to react to. Okay, the book, you know, if uh, inshallah one day I can maybe share it with some of you, you'll see that I usually put some marks. So there is pr pretty much not a single line here that doesn't have some marks. Okay, I have a lot to say about a lot of the passages. Um, so this passage from Leslie Hazelton. So first of all, who's Leslie Hazelton? Leslie Hazelton is a journalist. She's a woman now by perhaps in her mid-70s um, who specialized on, uh, in politics and religion. And a lot of her writings is about both. She, has, she understands enough about religion and a lot about politics. Uh, especially in the Middle East area, the three big faiths. Uh, she writes about them, she talks about them. She's a British-American journalist, as we said. So she talks about this intersection between politics and religion. Um, she's openly agnostic, and she has recently published a book about being agnostic and what it means, it's a manifesto, uh, and so on and so forth. And this is just to give a little bit of a profile. She has a number of TED Talks. I don't know if you've seen them or not. She's talked about a few topics. Uh, one of them is actually one of the most famous TED Talks. And she speaks specifically about the Quran and the Holy Prophet. And it is incredibly, for someone who, like her, is coming from the outside and talking about it, a very positive message. Uh, very, very well done. Uh, so anyways, so she has become even more famous because of not only one, but a few, um, four or five TED Talks, in addition to the fact that she's a very public figure as well, and so on and so forth. And she has a number of uh, different books, uh, including uh, this one and uh, other ones. I believe she has another book by the name of The First Muslim, Muhammad the First Muslim, or something like that. I haven't uh, read it. So... Long story short, um, my issue here is not to pick on Leslie Hazelton. I have no beef, I have no issue with Leslie Hazelton. Uh, I think this is one in a long series of books. I have another one here by Karen Armstrong, uh, Muhammad, a prophet for our time. Uh, you know, there are a number, a large, very, very large number and growing number of books uh, dealing with uh, Islamic history in general, or specifically the life of the Holy Prophet Michael Cook, Martin Lings, uh, as I said, uh, Karen uh, Armstrong and Leslie Hazelton, um, Montgomery Watt, you know, if you want to go uh, much earlier, uh, he wrote a biography of the Holy Prophet and, and the list goes on. So the idea here is really not to pick on this book or this author. Okay. In fact, she, I think her specifically, as well as all of these other authors, they should be commended and praised for their efforts uh, and the energy they put to go out of their way to understand the life of the Holy Prophet, to dig through Islamic literature, Islamic history, uh, which is complex, not always easy to follow, 
and you see these people from outside of this world spend so much time and so much effort and I honestly believe that uh, in these cases at least that I mentioned uh, their efforts are sincere their intentions are sincere they are truly trying to get the best most objective truthful uh, image of the Holy Prophet and of Islamic history and to present it in a very balanced way and to a large degree based on where they're coming from they actually do achieve that to to a large degree as I said so where's the issue part of the issue is that um, first of all they are mostly repeating what is available to them in books of history and in reality and I've spent quite a bit of time reading what uh, you know thinkers and orientalists and others have written about Islam and Islamic history Islamic theology Quranic commentaries usually it lacks analysis it lacks the the critical point of view they are good at finding the information synthesizing the information presenting the information and sometimes they will give some opinions but you'll see that they're very um, they're lacking. If you go to some of our authors and how they are able to analyze, take a political event, a political decision, and an analyze it and really explain the ramifications and the layers uh, of you know significance behind a, a political event or uh, a decision, you don't see any of that in most of their works. Uh, it's much more an, a narration of what happened, here's how it happened, and uh, if they are saying this is why, it's probably a repetition of what's contained in Tabari or Tabaqat uh, ibn Sa'ad or something like that, and it stops. It doesn't go further in their own uh, try, trying to really analyze, understand, well, if this person has this type of personality, what could it possibly mean? Okay, that usually is not there in, in most of these writings. And they are also open in a lot of cases. They're very open in that they're not going back to the original sources in the original language. Many of them are only reading in English or the languages that they understand. And therefore, they're not going to the original sources of history. And they're relying on what we call, in the academic world, we would call it second-hand information. Right? You're not going to the original sources to come up with your own opinions about them. Okay, some of them did. If you go back to Noldega and others, they did. But for these authors, Karen Armstrong openly says she is using secondhand information, right? Information that is freely available, English uh, language, and so on and so forth. And there is a lot of information available, but we can't compare that with uh, all of the information that's available, and there is a lot. Okay, so these are some of the big points to keep in mind. And then there is their general understanding of Islamic history, the nature of Islamic history itself. Islamic history is not an easy topic. What we need in Islamic history is true historians. Unless you just want to repeat what others are saying, you need to be a true historian. And a true historian is not someone who can simply repeat what the events were. That's fine, that's okay to be able to repeat, but that does not make you a historian in the Islamic sense. And someone who wants to say anything 
of significance, anything new to have an opinion about Islamic history, they need to do a lot more than just repeat the events as they are listed in the books of history. Why? A lot of reasons and we don't have time. This deserves a series of lectures, okay, to dig into. In part, because you need to understand, for instance, that after the Holy Prophet passes away, and for that next century, there is a censorship, and no one is allowed to report or write anything in the Islamic world. You are not allowed to say, Qala Rasulullah. You are not allowed to say, this is how he lived, or what he did, or what he didn't do, unless you are allowed to do so, and those were only one or two people. If you were Ka'b al-Ahbar, you had a seat in the mosque, and you could talk. Okay? Very few people were allowed to speak officially on behalf of Islam. That's one. So one century of censorship, and then finally, one caliph comes, and he, he does not completely remove the censorship. He says we're going to remove the censorship, and therefore his qadi, his main judge, is going to be allowed to start writing. Okay, that's really what happened. At year, around year 99. 99 or 100 to 101 during that time. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. So when they're saying this is what history says, and this is what happened, do they know that piece or not? Do they understand that perhaps maybe 60 to 80%, closer to 80, and perhaps even more, I don't have scientific data on this, of Islamic history basically, because of all the censorship, has roughly come down to us from two people. Only, and only two people. One of them was from Bani Umayyah. And one of them was a descendant of Bani Zubair. So when we say those words, a historian should right away understand what does it mean to say history has only come down to us through a person who is of an Amawi descent working in the Amawi government of the time and the other person is a Zubairi who is writing and working under Bani Zubair and with Bani Zubair. And then you add to that in the subsequent generations where you had actual historians, true professional historians, the likes of which would only appear centuries later in Europe, for instance, such as Ibn Ishaq, they were not allowed to write however they wanted. Ibn Ishaq wrote a gigantic work. He was not allowed to publish any of it. He ran away. There was one attempt after another because they did not like what he was writing. And so finally Ibn Husham took that work and massacred it. And the version of Ibn Ishaq is what Ibn Husham reported. And Ibn Husham openly says, I cannot report everything that I have learned from my master who has heard it from Ibn Ishaq because my master refuses to say certain things. And he has told me certain things, but he has told me not to write them because he doesn't want them to be attributed to him. Why? Because Bani Abbas would not allow those things to ever make it into official writing and history. Inshallah, we'll spend time in the future talking about all of these versions and all these events and incidents around Islamic history. And so, of course, we could continue like this. I'll finish maybe with one more point related to this, related to present-day editions. 
We would think now that there's a huge movement of printing and publishing happening in the world with very beautiful editions coming out. Glossy paper and thick covers and beautiful. Some of them are even colored. You have different colors in these editions. No one is paying attention to the fact that there's a whole lot of cutting and editing happening in these newer editions. And unless you sit and compare between the new editions that are coming out and previous editions, unless you're basically an academic who specializes in this field and with access to previous versions of many of these books, you'll see that the newer editions of, let's say, Tariq al-Tabari or Tabaqat ibn Mas'ud or Ansab al-Ashraf of Baladari or others, they are being modified until today. The censorship is continuing until today. So we have a very long history of distortions and issues around Islamic history. And especially, unfortunately, especially around the Holy Prophet and the figure of the Holy Prophet. For all sorts of reasons. To justify what the Khalifa wants to do, the Holy Prophet has to do it. And so let's create an event. We can create a whole battle if you want. Entire battles were created and added into Islamic history so that the Holy Prophet did something to someone because the Khalifa wants to do it now or he already did it. So that no one says, but this is not Islamic, we can add it into Islamic history and show, well, the Holy Prophet did it. So it's all Islamic. He's only repeating. In fact, the Holy Prophet did worse. Right? The Holy Prophet did his wudu with Nabiv. So it was fine for anyone to come later and do that. It would be fine for the Khalifa to live surrounded by wine and alcohol. The Holy Prophet would enter rooms, private rooms, where he would see very you know, young, beautiful girls singing. So it would be fine for the Khalifa to have uh, young singers uh, you know, singing throughout the night. Because the Holy Prophet does it. Is it because the Holy Prophet did it? Or because these people were working in the government of Bani Abbas? working in the government of Bani Umayyah, and they needed political justifications. And so really that's what we mean when we say, if you want to talk about Islamic history, you do need to show some ability of having a critical perspective, one, and you have to have a very investigative mind. You're doing the work of a journalist, you're doing the work of an investigator, where you're going after clues and every time you look and you understand the profiles of these people, you understand how the distortion may happen and so you're on your guard. And then you find clues that lead you to say, okay, but this, this now makes sense. Okay, so this one we remove because it's not compatible with. This one, okay, this one we accept. This one is plausible, but we don't know. We put it in the gray basket. This is why we say you need to have more than an ability to go read what's in the book and repeat. And say, Tabari said, as she says at the end, this book would not be possible without the last man that she wants to thank in this book. Uh, she says, um, in any case, she thanks Al-Tabari. Because she says this book would, so she relied very heavily on Tariq Al-Tabari, which is fine. Which is, that's not the issue. As I said, I don't have an issue with her or this book specifically. But that's the difference between being able to report what's contained in a specific book or a number of books and being able to justify. First of all, you need the readers to understand that for this incident, there are probably 10 or 12 or 15 or 30 different versions. Which one are you choosing and why? 
What's your justification for this one? Why are you rejecting these other 15? What's the issue with them? Is it the chain of narrators? Is there an issue with the event itself? Is it historically or geographically inaccurate and therefore probably made up much later? And so on and so forth, right? So inshallah, I think all of these points are clear, but as I said, this is not to blame Leslie Hazelton or to blame her book or to blame any of these other books. It's just as a caveat. And so what, where does this leave us? This means that for the majority of us, before we just grab these books and start reading, we need to make sure that we have sufficient, reliable understanding of what Islamic history is or how the Holy Prophet's biography actually looks like, sufficiently enough that, ideally I would say so that when you read, you're actually able to assess and evaluate and add all the X's that I've added on every paragraph. Say, have an issue here, have an issue here, have an issue here. But at least so that when you read it, there are some flags that you raise. You say, I'm not sure about this one, but I know where to find the information. If you can't do that, then you're probably not the best person for reading these books because all sorts of information is going to be thrown your way. Good, bad, and ugly. And because you have no way of knowing, if as we said, you begin reading this book and it says, well, Prophet Muhammad himself did not even know that he was going to die. So if that's the entire frame you have of the event and what happened, then that's it. You're set on a certain path. It makes sense now that the Holy Prophet leaves this world and he has no wasiyah, he has no will, and he leaves the community to deal with itself and deal with who the successor is. Death just took him by surprise. He did not know. No one around him knew. It just happened. Right? And of course, by the way, she contradicts herself in the next paragraph and the next chapter, and then after that, she goes back and forth. As I said, that's not the, her and her book are not the issue here. It's really to use that as an example. So in the time that we have left, let me just very quickly examine this claim that the Holy Prophet was basically taken by surprise by his own death. So our claim is going to be, the counterclaim is that we don't think the Holy Prophet was surprised by his own death one bit, one, nor were anyone of those who were around him in general or around him in a very close way. So if we're talking about his family members, if we're talking about his closer companions, everybody knew the Holy Prophet was passing away. In fact, generally speaking, it was well known in the Islamic world at that time that there was something going on and most likely the Holy Prophet may be leaving this world very soon. Why? First of all, to say that the Holy Prophet was taken by surprise as she did, she did not, there are no uh, references or nothing, so it's entirely based on conjecture. That's her own opinion or interpretation of what is happening. That's her best explanation of Otherwise, why would we end up with the version of events that we ended up with? It, he must have been taken by surprise. He did not, he's sick, but he doesn't think that he's actually going to die. And those around him don't actually think that he's going to pass away this time. That's one. The second reason is 
The Holy Prophet, and she talks about this in the book, the Holy Prophet went through, she says, at least three assassination attempts that were major. In fact, there were many more. From the time that the Holy Prophet said, I am a messenger of Allah, his life became in danger. And it continued throughout the time that he was in Mecca. He moved to Ta'if, they tried to kill him in Ta'if. He came back and then he went to Medina. And in Medina, there were multiple assassination attempts all the way to, and I have hinted to it, even one of them happening very late in the seerah of the Holy Prophet, in the biography, in the life of the Holy Prophet. After the uh, pilgrimage uh, of the farewell, there was another assassination attempt. After the Holy Prophet came back from Hajjat al-Wada'a, there was another assassination attempt. And in fact, we have narrations that say, and the Holy Prophet named the Munafiqeen. He said who they were, but once again, to talk about Islamic history, go through all of the books of Islamic history. You will not find a single name of those people, but you will find a mention that the Holy Prophet named each and every one of the people who tried to assassinate him. We can put a list together. Some scholars have tried to say, based on the profiles, based on everything we know, based on their investigative work, Here's who we think the list is on that list. But the Holy Prophet, we are told, explicitly said who those people were. The people knew, and he forgave them, and nothing happened to them. And we know that for a fact that there were companions of the Holy Prophet who knew. Hudayfa and others knew. And he knew them. And those people were afraid. We are told some companions were, would be very afraid of Hudayfa for this reason, and other companions, because they knew. And at any time, he could use that knowledge. But the Holy Prophet asked him not to. Okay? In any case. So that's two. Then in, in including, included in these assassination attempts. Okay, so before we talk about that. Rationally speaking. So you are someone whose life has been in danger under threat of being assassinated again and again and again. Okay? Through poison, through being thrown off a cliff. Laylatul Mabit where he left from... Mecca and Imam Ali السلام, slept in, in his bed instead of him so that they don't know that the Holy Prophet has run away going to Medina you're someone who constantly lives with this would you not think that someone who lives this type of life would expect to die at any given time and they're ready and they would handle it or would they be entirely surprised that something is you know, going to lead to their death at some point look at just normal figures of the world today some people who are on the run and if you do interviews with them, if you talk to them, you see that they will openly say, yeah, I know now, at any time, my life is now in danger. It only makes sense. Death is not going to take me by surprise. I may drink something and there was something put in it. I may go somewhere and I'm shot in the street. I may go somewhere and they will look, make it look like it was an, an accident. And so on and so forth. Is this not rational? So are we saying the Holy Prophet is so gullible and naive that even though he's going through these 3 or 10 or 15 or 30 assassination attempts, he still doesn't know that he may die. And death is just coming to him as a surprise. Okay. Then there is an incident, I'm just quickly mentioning it before going to the next argument. There's an in incident that's constantly mentioned that the Holy Prophet was poisoned by a woman after the Battle of Khaybar. So very quickly, that is, you know, one of the beautiful <laughs> concoctions and distortions and fabrications of history where you have someone poisoning the Holy Prophet in year 7 and he dies of that poison in year 11 
That's quite a sophisticated type of poison. Uh, I don't know how they activated it, you know, three or four years later. Okay? These are examples of, you know, the distortions in history. But because there's an issue, there was a real need and reason because those people who were close to the Holy Prophet knew that something perhaps not natural is happening to the Holy Prophet in his last couple of days that they had to make up a story to link the Holy Prophet to having been poisoned. What's the best way to do it? To bring it back to a story that may have actually happened. And that's the, the calamity of that story. The disastrous aspect of that story. That when the Holy Prophet, they say, the, the, there was a, a lamb that was cooked for the Holy Prophet and other, others of his companions brought to the Holy Prophet. That woman wanted to take a revenge against the Holy Prophet because he had killed members of her family in, in the Battle of Khaybar. So she poisoned that lamb and, uh, or the goat and she brought it to the Holy Prophet. And as he wanted to start eating, he invited his companions. They started eating. One of them actually died beside the Holy Prophet. He ate and the Holy Prophet wanted to start eating. And then he told them, do not eat. Why? They say the Holy Prophet, miraculously, the Holy Prophet told them, the goat or the lamb told me I am poisoned. So, if the event is true, let us go along with the story. If the event is true, it means the Holy Prophet did not eat. So I don't know why he's dying from that poison four years later. Yes, the companion who ate with the Holy Prophet died. He died that night beside the Holy Prophet. And they say they threw the rest of the meat to dogs and the dogs died. So you can't say that that meat caused the Holy Prophet to die. But if there was poison, why is there a need to say that the Holy Prophet died with poison because something may have happened that those around at that time knew the Holy Prophet is not dying naturally and we have very clear indications of that and inshallah we leave that to another time a third reason is the legal aspect generally speaking Islam says you're supposed to be orderly in all of your affairs Right? We read in, in Shah Ramadan, Imam Ali السلام, says, Make sure that all of your affairs are orderly, well organized, well managed. And that includes having a wasiyah. In fact, you're supposed to have a wasiyah the moment you think that you may die. Okay? It's mustahab or slash wajib to have your wasiyah ready. The Holy Prophet is teaching all the Muslims to have all of their affairs always in order, to always be ready. To always have a will ready if they were to leave this world. If you have wealth, if you have possessions, if you have debt, if you have prayers, if you have fasting, all of that is part of the wasiyah. And yet he doesn't do it himself. He doesn't have a wasiyah ready in case that he, are, he is going to depart from this world. Does not make sense. And then the manner in which the Holy Prophet behaved in his own life. Again and again we have a reference from the Holy Prophet himself when he says that, for instance, when he would leave on battle or he would leave on any type of travel, he would always give a wasiyah to someone to deal with things. If something were to happen, this is the person who is going to execute my will, he says. Right? And we have that many, many explicit statements. When the Holy Prophet left Mecca to come to Medina, he told Imam Ali and these are some possessions, and there is so and so, and there is a debt, you have to go pay him before you come. I haven't paid him back yet. Right? And that's why the Holy Prophet tells Imam Ali again and again that you are the one who executes my will. 
And the next uh, point that we wanted to talk about, the general teachings of Islam, the spiritual moral teachings of Islam. Islam teaches, therefore, i.e. the Holy Prophet teaches, that as a Muslim, you are supposed to be always on the ready for death. We are told, for instance, that's one quick story. We're told, for instance, that one day Abu Dhar and Salman, two of the closest companions of the Holy Prophet, were sitting and talking. And Salman asked Abu Dhar, he told him, how much hope do you have in this life? How long do you aspire to and plan towards? And Abu Dhar said, when I wake up in the morning, I don't know if I will sleep that night. And when I sleep at night, I don't know if I will wake up in the morning. What about you? Asking Salman. Salman told him, when the breath goes up, I don't know if another one will come down. And when the breath goes down, I don't know if it will go back up. And that's the rank between Abu Dhar and Salman. There's a reason why Salman, the Holy Prophet says, Salmanu minna, Ahl al-Bayt. These are companions of the Holy Prophet. The Holy Prophet himself does not know and death takes him by surprise and he teaches his companions, some of them, so that they reach this ability and this potential and this readiness for death that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may take my soul at any instant. I'm ready. But he himself is taken by surprise. Something does not work. Then we have actually going through the events of history. There are many of these, a couple of them. One of them is, we are told that the year the Holy Prophet departed from the world, and all the companions knew this, that's why I say it was common knowledge in the Islamic world. The last Ramadan, the last month of fasting that the Holy Prophet spent, the Holy Prophet was known throughout his life, since the time that Shahar Ramadan would begin, the last 10 days of the month of Ramadan, he would do i'tikaf. He would stay in the mosque and worship. He would fast during the day and he would worship all night. 10 straight nights, the last 10 nights of the month of Ramadan every year. The last year of his life, all the Muslims knew that the Holy Prophet spent 20 nights in i'tikaf, not 10. And they knew something must have happened. There is something different about this. That the Holy Prophet is spending double the time in worship this year than in other years. That's one example. Another example, the Holy Prophet told a number of people in that year that the Holy Quran was revealed to him twice that year. The Holy Quran would be revealed to the Holy Prophet in its entirety every year once. Jibra'il comes to the Holy Prophet and he gives the Holy Quran, not in not the book form, not the words, the true Quran, the meanings of the Quran from another world, on the heart of the Holy Prophet, as the Holy Quran says, This is when Jibreel brings the entire Quran to the heart of the Holy Prophet. This would happen once a year, every year from the beginning of his prophethood, before the Qur'an is actually revealed based on the external incidents, the socio-political, cultural incidents that require explanation, and then that's when the verses would be revealed to the people. But to the Holy Prophet, the entirety of the Qur'an is revealed all at once. 
from the beginning of his prophethood and this would happen once a year and this is Laylatul Qadr in any case and so what happens after the Holy Prophet passes who is this revealed to in any case that year the Holy Prophet said to a number of people that the Holy Quran was presented to him by Jibreel twice that year that's another example of an incident where the Muslims were talking about this year is different this year there is something happening but let's say this is all conjecture the Holy Prophet announced again and again in the last few months at least of his life that he is about to die if you read the sermon of Hajjat al-Wada' the farewell pilgrimage he says in there explicitly he says I am about to be called and I will obey the call I'm about to be summoned and I am going to respond to the call Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is calling me I will soon leave this world he said elsewhere to some of his companions he told them Jibra'il has come to me in one of the incidents uh, it's a longer incident but he, they ask him and he says Jibra'il has come to me and he has presented me to stay eternally in this world and to get all of its riches or to depart to the encounter of my Lord and I have chosen to depart to the encounter of my Lord okay these are the last months of the life of the Holy Prophet again we have another hadith we are told that the Holy Prophet would take to the pulpit and he would say I will soon be departing this is in Tabaqat ibn Mas'ud he says the Holy Prophet would stand on the pulpit and he would say I will soon be departing our meeting spot will be Al-Kawthar, Hawd Al-Kawthar, will be the pool and I am looking at it now so the Holy Prophet is standing on the pulpit telling them I see Hawd Al-Kawthar right now as I talk to you I see Hawd Al-Kawthar I do not fear for you that, may you that you may worship other gods I do not fear that you're going to fall into shirk you're not going to worship other gods but I fear for you your love of this world so he's basically telling them, that's it. I've delivered everything I have to deliver. I know that none of you are going to leave Islam generally. I know that none of you are going to go worship other gods. But what I do fear is that many of you are going to love this world too much. So when I'm gone, if you want to pay attention to one thing, it's that. None of you are going to become mushrik. Don't worry about that. Right? Why is the Holy Prophet doing this? And so anyone who goes through, these are just quick examples. If you go through the history of the Holy Prophet, go at Ahdaf Sanat Ahdash, the events of the 11th year of Hijrah. This is, you know, this and dozens like it of examples are very clearly there. So anyone who is writing a book of history, if they actually go through it, it's a little difficult to see how they can say all of this was still leading to an extremely surprising situation for the Holy Prophet that he is going to be leaving this world so was it entirely a surprise no he knew everyone around him knew we're told that at the very end a number of events we don't have time to go through a lot of the events inshallah we dedicate lectures to this to really understand those 
last couple of months and then couple of weeks and then couple of days and couple of hours of the Holy Prophet's life in this world and then what happened right after. But some of the big events are that there was the calamity of the Thursday, the last Thursday of the life of the Holy Prophet. So what does it mean when this man that you've been living with for 23 years tells you, I want to write my will. So bring me something with which I can write and something on which I can write. So that I may write to you something. If you follow it, you will never go astray after me. Is this not a will? Or is this a man who has been taken entirely by surprise? Okay, and so of course we all know the answer that was given right away just so that the Holy Prophet does not put anything in writing at that time. Umar ibn al-Khattab at that moment said, the man is speaking nonsense. And in another version, He's saying gibberish. He's saying nonsense. In other versions, they say So he's under too much pain. So he's saying things that don't make any sense. He's hallucinating. He's saying nonsense. The book of Allah is sufficient for us. We don't need to write anything or listen to anything that he has to say. Just a quick question. I'll just quick open and close bracket. If today, anywhere in the world, someone, let's say a non-Muslim, were to come out and make a proclamation, he takes something that the Holy Prophet says, and they say, the Holy Prophet Muhammad says, this is gibberish. This is nonsense. Would there not be calls to boycott and protests in the street, and people who say, you can't blaspheme and talk ill against our Prophet, and this is un unacceptable, Okay, so this man became the second Khalifa of the Muslim world. One of the men who is considered the closest to the Holy Prophet was saying that. And so right away, there's a fight that erupted in that tiny room where the Holy Prophet is dying. And this was said, other companions objected to this. How can you say something like that about the Holy Prophet? In fact, some historians have said some had their hands on their swords. So the Holy Prophet said, get up and leave me. It is not becoming that there is fighting or arguing in the presence of a messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Leave. The Holy Prophet kicked them out. And then, obviously they knew what the Holy Prophet was writing. They could not let that writing happen. And then the Holy Prophet tried to push them out from Medina. So that nothing would happen because the Holy Prophet is aware of what's happening. Inshallah one day we'll talk a lot more about what was actually the political and military and social context of Al-Madinah Al-Munawwara at that time. And how these tribes of Bedouins came into Medina from outside with thousands of men carrying weapons as though there was already an alliance in place between some people and some other people. Okay? Aslam. Uh, when, when Umar ibn al-Khattab says, when I saw Aslam, the tribe of Aslam, when I saw Aslam, tayaqantu bin Nasr, I became certain of victory. When he was talking about how Abu Bakr became the Khalifa, when he was asked to repeat those incidents that led to Abu, Khalifa, Abu Bakr becoming the Khalifa. He says, when I saw the tribe of Aslam actually come, 
I became certain of victory. Victory of what? Against who? And why Aslam? Aslam are some commentators, if you go back to the verses of the Quran, that talk about Al-A'rabu Ashaddu Kufran Wa Nifaqa, they mention four tribes. Aslam is one of the tribes. Juhayma and Aslam and two other tribes. Okay? They, they were known to be living outside. They did not have these alliances. They had not lived under truly Islamic rule. They were not really carrying any Islamic knowledge. They were still living very much based on the tribal conditions and circumstances that were in place in the time of Jahiliyyah. In any case, the Holy Prophet tried to push all of these people out. He told them, you must go in the dispatch of Usama. There is a battle. The Romans are entering on Islamic land. You must go and defend those lands towards Syria, where the Byzantine uh, Empire was starting to infiltrate and come in. And the Holy Prophet pre prepared over that, those last couple of last weeks in his life, he prepared an army. And Usama ibn Zayd was supposed to be the leader. And under the pretext that Usama was too young and how could he lead, they would refuse to go. And the Holy Prophet came out on his pulpit when he saw them coming back and he said, you must leave. And they say, but he's too young and he gave a sermon. And at the end he said, May God curse those who do not join the army of Usama, the battalion of Usama like I ordered. But they, they still did not depart. In fact, Osama himself did not depart. They went and they, create, they set up a camp about three miles outside of Medina al-Munawwara. And then the news would keep coming from inside the house of the Holy Prophet. The Holy Prophet is about to die. The Holy Prophet is about to die. So Osama said, I can't leave. I have to come back. And so in the reports, Osama himself came back that the Holy Prophet appointed as the leader, he himself came back and he said, I came, the Holy Prophet was passed out. Because during those last days, the Holy Prophet would go in and out of consciousness. And he says, but then he opened his eyes and I kissed him, but he couldn't talk. So he just put his hand on my shoulder and I understood that he was praying for me. And so I went back to the camp. And they would not leave the camp. They stayed at Jurf, which is three miles away from Medina, and they would not go beyond. And the others came back. They would not even stay with us. They came back to Medina and they came inside the house. And then the Holy Prophet would say, as he was dying, he would say, call my brother so that he prays. So Aisha went and called her father. And when he came, the Holy Prophet said, no, call my brother. And so Hafsa went and called Umar. And the Holy Prophet said, no, call Ali so that he prays. And then they saw that Abu Bakr was already standing to perform the prayer. And of course, here are two different versions of history. If you know how to dig, you will find the version that Aisha says. He came out of the house when he saw that, he asked to be carried. And two men carried him, she says, a man and his uncle Al-Abbas. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the narrator in one of the books says, and I asked, who is the man, did she know? And he said, yes. But she can't stand saying his name. Imam Ali السلام, carried the Holy Prophet. He was under one side of the shoulder of the Prophet. Al-Abbas was on the other. They carried the Prophet and they say his feet were on the ground. He could not walk. He had to be carried. He was carried so that the Holy Prophet knew. It's not about the prayer. 
The Muslims have always prayed with one of them, whoever amongst them can be the Imam. The Holy Prophet knows that this may actually be used by people politically against his will and against his orders. Someone is going to say, well, Abu Bakr prayed exactly like it happened and go see other versions of history and they will say Abu Bakr was praying and the Holy Prophet came and he sat on the side with a big smile on his face and that's the last time they saw him and his face was bright. The Holy Prophet came and he was placed on the prayer mat and he prayed from Julus. He could not stand so he prayed while sitting down and all the Muslims prayed behind him so that Abu Bakr does not pray so that the Holy Prophet knows that people would not use that as a pretext by saying the Holy Prophet appointed Abu Bakr to perform the prayer instead of him therefore he is the one there is a symbol behind this okay and so the in any case the events continued in this way the last one the big one the last one is that when the Holy Prophet ordered that even though I may be sick I order that no one gives me any medicine and yet they gave the Holy Prophet medicine they openly say we gave him medicine he was passed out and we opened his mouth and we put the liquid medicine in his mouth after he said do not put medicine in my mouth and he woke up and he knew that he was fed a liquid and he told them he ordered that everyone who is currently in the house except Al-Abbas those are the words of the Holy Prophet except Al-Abbas his uncle who was in the house he wants everyone in the house immediately to take the same to drink from the same liquid of course they did not why did the Holy Prophet say that this is in the Sahah Muslim and Al-Bukhari okay and so in the end the Holy Prophet asked that everyone leaves him alone except his Ahlul Bayt and so Imam Ali السلام, Fatima al-Zahra, Imam al-Hassan and Imam al-Hussein were with the Holy Prophet until the end the Holy Prophet's head was not resting on the chest of any of his wives as we have in all sorts of different versions of history his head was in the lap of Imam Ali السلام, as he himself says in some of his sermons he says when his soul departed his head was in my lap and I'm the one who closed his eyes, Imam Ali السلام, says. And so in those instances, we are told that finally when he called his Ahl al-Bayt, initially they were not allowed to come because the Holy Prophet was put in the room of Aisha under the pretext that this was her day or her night as was customary based on Islamic law that a man who has more than one wife spends one day in the room or in the house of each one of these wives. And so in the end, Ahl al-Bayt they had not really seen the Holy Prophet. Only certain people had been allowed to come in and out because it's a room. And so in the end when the Holy Prophet asked everyone to leave, what did they go do? They go to decide who was going to become the Khalifa after the Holy Prophet just like they had prevented him from writing his will. That's the one thing on everyone's mind. And they forgot about the Holy Prophet who is dying. And the only people with him at the end were Imam Ali السلام, and Fatima and Al-Hassan and Al-Hussein. 
And when Fatima Zahra came into the room, she saw the color of the Holy Prophet entirely changed. It was yellowish or greenish. And so she started reciting the verses of Abu Talib, his verses of poetry, when he talks about the Holy Prophet. When, when there's a drought, it's a long poem in which Abu Talib says, when we used to have a drought, we used to go and pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he makes it rain based on the whiteness of the face of the Holy Prophet That's the man who's supposedly a non-believer, right? Abu Talib. So Fatima Zahra when she saw her father and she saw the color of his face, she started reciting those verses of poetry in reference to the color of the face of the Holy Prophet. She said, So he told her, My daughter, I hear you reciting the verse of Abu Talib. There is something more appropriate for you to say here. She said, What? And he recited the verse, وَمَا مُحَمَّدٌ إِلَّا رَسُولٌ قَدْ خَلَتْ مَنْ قَبْلِهُ الرَّسُولٌ Muhammad is not but a messenger. Messengers have passed before him. And subhanAllah, this verse was revealed perhaps seven or eight years before. Right? In year three, this verse was revealed. And it says, أَوْ عَلَىٰ So if he were to die, or to be slain or killed, are you going to turn back on your heels? Are you going to leave this religion and go back to the time of Jahiliyyah just because he has died? Is his death or his killing going to amount to that? So she knew right away, Fatima Zahra We have a narration that says Imam Ali fainted. And Fatima Zahra knew, they cried, the Holy Prophet told them one by one what would happen after his passing away, after his demise. And at the very end, the Holy Prophet was having trouble with his breathing. His breathing was becoming heavy. We are told that Imam al-Hassan, Imam al-Hussein who were still young children at that time, they climbed on the chest and they lied on the chest of the Holy Prophet Fatima Zahra tried to remove them out of fear that the Holy Prophet can't breathe. So he told her, no, let them enjoy me a little bit more and let me enjoy them a little bit more. As he would say, these are Raihanatai. These are the my two tranquilities and my two pieces of the world. Right? As though the Holy Prophet knew what would await Imam al-Hassan and Imam al-Hussein and Ahl al-Bayt in general after his demise. And that's why in our narrations and in the ziyarat of the Imams to the Holy Prophet we hear and the Imams say that this is the greatest calamity that has happened in history. On one side, we have their in complete interruption of the direct revelation to humanity. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala no longer communicates with human beings through messengers and prophets when the Holy Prophet leaves this world, the last of the prophets. And there is also everything that happened to Ahlul Bayt everything that happened to this religion, to Fatima and Ali and Hassan and Hussein and their descendants.
We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help us understand the life of the Holy Prophet, to walk in his footsteps, to visit his grave in this world, and to be worthy of his greater intercession in the afterlife. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين